1: The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series A Seat at the Table where we look at the life and legacy of a cabinet member, I have invited on a fellow podcaster to talk through this cabinet member's life, career and legacy, and my guest today is Andy from the History of Africa podcast. Andy, thank you so much for being here.
0: Uh thank you Jerry, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Andy. Uh, as Jerry just said, I'm the host of the History of Africa podcast. No points for guessing what we focus on there. It's the history of Africa. Generally, we bounce around from region to region and civilization to civilization. We've done seasons on Egypt, Aksum, and the Ashanti Empire, and we're moving into the Sokoto Jihad and the uh, Merina Empire of Madagascar. So happy to be here. Nice. Well, so glad to have you here.
1: And for those of you who haven't listened to the History of Africa podcast yet, highly recommend you do so. I will actually be sharing around the release of this episode, information on my social media, and we'll also have it on the source notes for this episode. So please feel free to check that out. Highly recommend it. I've greatly enjoyed. I've, I'm i starting into season two. I've listened to a couple of episodes here and there out of sequence, but been trying to go through systematically and it has been great thus far, great content and so much insight and perspective into these amazing cultures and civilizations. So glad to have you here, Andy. Let's go ahead and get started. So as per usual, Andy does not know who we are going to be talking about. So he is learning now that we are going to be talking about Albert Gallatin. Andy, do you happen to know anything about Albert Gallatin before we get started?
0: Oh, yeah. I like went to school with someone with that name. Oh, wow. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have no <laughs> idea who this is. I have no idea who this is. I was about to say that
1: would be a coincidence.
0: <laughs> so no prior knowledge of Gallatin? Not even the slightest. I've never heard this name before.
1: All righty, so we have quite a bit to discuss, so let's just go ahead and dive in. First of all, Albert Gallatin was born in Geneva, Switzerland. He was the second child of Jean and Sophie albertine Roulas Gallatin, and he was born on January ninth, 1761. Now, he came from a rather well-to-do family that had been established for generations in Geneva, with some of his ancestors having served as Lord Mayor of the city. So this was a prominent family that he was born into. He spent the early days of his life in the family's home at the corner of the Rue des Granges and the Rue du Cheval Blanc, described as an, quote, impressive four-story stone structure that boasted wide windows and broad facades in each street. Gallatin's older sister, Suzanne, had what was described as, quote, an incurable nervous disability and required a good amount of care. Unfortunately for Gallatin, loss would come from early on in life as his father died in the summer of 1765. And so with his mother Sophie struggling to take care of the nine-year-old Suzanne, as well as run her husband's watch business, it was decided that Albert should be cared for by Jean Galatin's cousin and Sophie's close friend, Catherine Pictet. Now, Pictet was unmarried, so she was able to focus her attention on Albert and he in turn saw her as the mother figure in his life. So definitely some some transitions you know early on in life, but he also grew up, you know, well taken care of by the surrogate mother. Albert only saw his sister once more after their father's death, and Suzanne herself died by the time she was twenty. Now, as described by Gallatin biographer Nicholas Dungan, quote, between Miss Piquet his grandparents at Pragny, and a close-knit extended family, Albert lived a perfectly happy childhood. At the age of 12, Albert was enrolled in the Academy of Geneva, which was a boarding school, and it was described as, quote, the principal educational institution in Geneva. And it was during this time at this boarding school, again from Dungan, quote, Gallatin followed the curriculum of the Department of Philosophy, which included humanities and science. He read Latin and Greek literature and took courses in geography, history, French composition, elocution, mathematics, and physics. So some pretty heavy subject matter for somebody so young.
0: Yeah, he's 12 at this point, right?
1: Yes. So, <laughs> so it was a bit
0: more intense than pre-algebra?
1: Just, just a little bit, just a little bit. But he wasn't just into the studies. He also forged friendships there with two folks in particular, Henri Serret and Jean Badolet, as well as others. But Badolet and Serret are significant in that the three began discussing a plan to leave Geneva to seek better prospects elsewhere. And so, you know, here he's getting this great education and already starting to think about where he wants to go in the world. And he's already decided his future is not in Geneva. Now, upon graduation, Gallatin lived with Miss Pictet once more and tutored her nephew, but as there were few prospects in Geneva that appealed to him, he continued to develop his ideas on seeking other opportunities abroad. And finally, on April 1st, 1780, the 19-year-old Gallatin and his friend Sarey left Geneva bound for the French port city of Nantes, some 370 miles away, without telling their families. So you can imagine what Miss Piquet, the Gallatins, and the Saray family thought of this.
0: <laughs> yeah, I assume I assume they had some pretty strong emotions on the matter.
1: Yeah, they they did at least have another friend tell them after they were gone, but yeah, they weren't best pleased about it. And so the Gallatins and Miss Piquet immediately picked up their pens and wrote to Albert expressing their concern for him and also that they were hurt that he left without telling them. But still they did what they could to support the two young men and they wrote letters of introduction for them. They sent them money for their journey. So even though they're saying, you know, this was really cruddy the way you did this, they were still out to help them as much as they could. And Gallatin and Saray secured passage on an american ship which was bound for boston and that ship set sail on may 27th 1780 and so at that point it took a couple of months to get across the atlantic you know transportation was slow in those days but they arrived in massachusetts on july 14th 1780 now we know that this is towards the end of the revolutionary war at the time that wasn't quite so clear to folks on the ground they didn't know that it was about to end. So, this was still an ongoing matter. And the fact that the war was still going on would prove to hinder the prospects of these newly arrived immigrants. Now, they had come to Boston and they had planned to sell the shipment of tea that they had bought from France and they had brought it with them. They were like, this is how they're going to get established. But with the war, the economy was poor and there was little market for non essential goods. Ultimately, Gallatin and Saray exchanged the tea for other commodities, which would be more well-suited, including rum, sugar, and tobacco. And they actually met up with this other family who had immigrated from Switzerland 30 years prior, and they left with them to go to Machias, which is in the main district, which is where they stayed for the winter. Now, even though these goods were more in demand than tea was, There was still little market for their new goods in Machias. I mean, this was in the main district. It wasn't an urban area like Boston. And so they ended up having to sell these goods for a $400 note payable to be drawn on the Massachusetts State Treasury. Now, the problem with that is that the State Treasury was nearly broke. So Gallatin, in order to get something for their trouble, exchanged it for $100. $100 did go a bit further in those days than it does now. However, for two young men trying to get a start and make their way in the world, it really wasn't much for them. So their plan went bust. So they were in the main district at this point and finally decided that they should go back to Boston. There were going to be more opportunities for them there. So they returned to boston and gallatin and Saray gave french lessons in order to bring in some money to keep them going gallatin's ability to speak french would ultimately get him a job in july 1782 as a french instructor at harvard college with this position it quote gave him the use of the library a room in the college and meals in the common room if he wished to pay for them the skills that he brought being from europe are starting to help him out to actually get some
0: footing under him god i can only imagine back in the day like it, how how easy relatively it must have been to get a job at a university these days you have to go through all these processes but back then it's like hey you speak french uh, come on in uh yeah we could we need someone who can speak french yeah <laughs> yeah sure why not yeah, we need an instructor. You'll do. You you sound like you can speak French, right? <laughs> I like to imagine that someone just sort of went in and made some vaguely French-sounding noises at some point. <laughs> they were like, "Oh, you can speak French." And they were like, "Je comprends, sure can." And they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, all right. That you're now the the chair of the French department at Harvard." Oh ho ho! <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: But yeah, it is fascinating. It's just, you know, here's this guy who just comes out of nowhere and, oh, you speak French. Oh, now you work at Harvard.
2: Okay. (laughs) Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October
1: 31st. Now, you know, this really sets him up and starts to, to get him on a better footing than he was. And in less than a year, Gallatin actually gained another position, this time as an interpreter for a French citizen. Jean Savary de Valcoucon, who was seeking repayment on a debt owed to his client by the state of Virginia, which had been incurred during the Revolutionary War. So now his talents are kind of going in the other direction. He's got this French citizen who's trying to do business, doesn't really speak English. And oh, by the way, here's this guy from Geneva who can help me out. And that's the thing. Like Savary arrived in the U.S. with no knowledge of English. And... At this point, the Harvard instructor, Gallatin, quote, had achieved near fluency in English, though he still had a very strong French accent. And this would be something, as he goes along in his career, it seems like he never really lost that accent, even though he could speak English. And that would come back up from time to time. Severi and Gallatin proceeded from Boston to Richmond with leisurely stops in Providence, Newport. New York City, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, allowing Gallatin a chance to see more of his adopted nation than he had had an opportunity to do in the three years since he had first landed in Massachusetts. So he's finally getting a chance to see some of the other states. They remained in Richmond through the end of 1783 and into February 1784, and his work for Savary allowed Gallatin the opportunity to make the acquaintance of many leading Virginians. Now, as we no, and I'm sure the audience knows connections with prominent Virginians are going to be an important thing in the early Republic. So this is a good step for Gallatin. And Gallatin apparently made such an impression on Savary that his employer granted him, quote, a one quarter interest in one hundred twenty thousand acres of land in Virginia for which Savary bought warrants during a trip they made to Baltimore. Thus, once the business was concluded in Richmond, They briefly returned to Philadelphia before leaving there in March 1784, bound for Pittsburgh and down the Ohio River to inspect their land in the western portion of Virginia. So this new land that Gallatin now has a stake in, they're going to actually check it out. When they get there, they kind of look at this land and they're like, "Eh, I mean, it's okay, but there's probably better land out there. And they actually had an idea about this place Fayette County in Pennsylvania. And so they thought that the land there may be a better prospect for them. And so they made a deal with a local farmer to establish a store near George's Creek. And Gallatin would work at this store until the end of 1784. So he's starting to get established in these Western lands in Western Pennsylvania. Now in September of that year, Gallatin met this guy You may have heard of him, George Washington, just, you know, this minor figure in history. Washington was actually going through the area. He was trying to plan a road across the Allegheny Mountains, and he was invested in this project. So he was traveling and trying to determine where this route could go. And he meets Gallatin, and Gallatin actually helped Washington determine the best location for the road. And in return, the general offered him a position as his land agent in the area. Even though, I mean, this sounded like a good deal, but Gallatin actually declined this offer because he wanted to focus in on his own planned land acquisitions and improvements. So he is actually one of the few people who said no to George Washington.
0: <laughs> Dang.
2: <laughs>
0: Not many people get to claim that, huh? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
1: But you know, he's got plans, he really wants to work on improving his situation. And so as seventeen eighty four gave way to seventeen eighty five, Gallatin and Savary returned to Richmond and spent the winter there before going back to Philadelphia. Then they went back again to Fayette County, quote, with a group of about fifteen experts whom they had recruited. And together they surveyed a site that they called Friends Landing, but their plans there were thwarted when native forces attacked them. And so, this was one of the dangers of trying to establish. And to be fair, you know, these were these people of European descent coming to these lands that the native peoples had been living on for generations in some cases and saying, oh, well, this is our land now. Of course, they weren't going to be happy about it. But trying to establish yourself in those areas as a settler, that was always one of the dangers at that point. But this didn't completely thwart Gallatin's plans. And he actually, he made his way back to George's Creek. And in October 1785, he took his oath of allegiance as a citizen of the United States. So he is saying, I am establishing my roots here. I'm not going back to Europe permanently. I'm settling here. It's interesting because he actually was technically a citizen of the state of Virginia because this was still under the Confederation government. So we really didn't have that, that federal structure that we would in a couple of years' time. They didn't know that at that point. But citizens were still citizens of a state rather than a national authority. So, But he is establishing himself as a citizen of this area. He is firmly attached to the United States now. In November of that year, Gallatin and Savary rented a house on five acres of land from the same farmer they had made the deal with to establish the store. And so they're trying to get things going. They're trying to figure out, you know, how to really get established. Gallatin actually had an ace up his sleeve because at this point, Gallatin was counting down the days to his next birthday when he was set to gain access to his inheritance as he was turning 25. You know, that was the stipulation he would finally be able to access his inheritance. And since he came from a prominent family, he figured, oh, well, this was going to be a good shot in the arm for his finances. Unfortunately for Gallatin, the debts of his predecessors, which were associated with the estate, and thus he inherited the debts and not just his inheritance, it meant that the money that he received from his inheritance was far less than what he imagined. Ultimately, what had been $100,000 was down to only $20,000 after the debts were paid. And the only amount that he had quick access to was around $5,000. You know, that's a lot less than he was expecting. However, that was also a good amount of money at the time. And especially since with his plans, because that was enough for him to be able to go back to Western Pennsylvania and purchase a 400 acre farm near George's Creek in February 1786. He would name the farm Friendship Hill, and this would become kind of his established estate for quite a long time. So he's establishing Friendship Hill. He's establishing himself in western Pennsylvania. And now that he's starting to get a firm footing under him, he was actually able to convince his old classmate, Jean Badolet, to immigrate from Geneva And Badalais would settle near Gallatin's new home. So he still had that strong connection with his friend and was able to convince him to come over and be a part of this new life. However, that third friend, the other friend that he had actually come over with, Henri Saleh, would not be joining them in the Friendship Hill area. Unfortunately, Saray passed away in Jamaica in the summer of that year. but. He at least has his other friend coming and, you know, seems like things are starting to work out for him, though he now had this established homestead. And at that time, you know, it took a bit to run a farm and make it prosperous. And that usually required a lot of attention. But Gallatin still traveled extensively up and down the eastern seaboard from 1786 through 1788. This was starting to be a pivotal time for Gallatin. And especially in August of 1788, it saw Gallatin get involved in political activities for the first time as he attended a meeting in the county seat, Uniontown, Pennsylvania, to discuss the new constitution that had been drafted in Philadelphia that year. Now, at this meeting, delegates were chosen to go to a statewide meeting in Harrisburg to discuss possible amendments to the constitution. And Again, this is very early on in Gallatin's career, but he was actually chosen as one of the two delegates. And thus, he attended this meeting in the state capitol on September 3rd that, quote, adopted a petition to the Pennsylvania state legislature to call for a new convention to revise the constitution while advising that the people of Pennsylvania should acquiesce in the organization of the federal government. So Pennsylvania would end up being the second state to ratify the constitution and Gallatin was a part of that effort. Fast forward a little bit, the requisite number of states ratify the constitution, this new government's coming into effect, and Gallatin's starting to get some credentials as somebody involved in politics. But there's one other area of his life that, you know, he's deciding around this time that he wants to work on, establishing a family. And during his trips to Richmond over the years, he had stayed at a boarding house run by Jane Battersby Allegrae. And while he was at this boarding house, he noticed and took a liking to Jane's daughter, Sophie. And thus, Gallatin set out on March 12, 1789 for Richmond, where he wooed Sophie and asked for her hand in marriage. Miss Allegrae, however, she wasn't really excited about the prospect of her daughter moving to this wilderness in Western Pennsylvania, you know, and at that time, transportation being what it was, it wasn't likely that she was going to see her daughter that much if she moved away like that. So she was kind of reluctant, but Gallatin continued to push ahead and try and convince her. And finally, in May, Albert and Sophie were wed and the two spent their honeymoon at New Kent. So He's starting to get himself established financially. He's starting to make a name for himself in politics. And now he's ready to start a family. And so the Gallatins return to their new home at Friendship Hill. But alas, theirs would be a short time together as Sophie passed away in October 1789. And Gallatin buried his young bride in an unmarked grave at Friendship Hill. Though things were not so well in his personal life, in the latter part of 1789, Gallatin did continue his political rise, and he was elected as a delegate to the state constitutional convention that October. But this was around the time of Sophie's death, so he was, of course, late in arriving. But on December 7, 1789, he arrived in Philadelphia to join the proceedings already in progress. And Gallatin later described the proceedings as follows quote, The distinguishing feature of the convention was that, owing perhaps to more favorable times, It was less affected by party feelings than any other public body that I've known. And Gallatin's biographer, Dungan, asserted that, quote, Gallatin was impressed by and inclined toward the type of harmonious compromise that could get the public business done. And so he had this experience with the state convention. And then in October of 1790, the voters of Fayette County chose Gallatin to represent them in the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives, and they would reelect him to that body twice. Gallatin gave his later recollections of this time in his life as follows, quote, I acquired an extraordinary influence in that body, the more remarkable, as I was always in a party minority. I was indebted for it to my great industry and to the facility with which I could understand and carry on the current business. And so, you know, you see Gallatin not necessarily being in the best position, but at the same time, being able to work with folks in the state legislature, being able to make those political wheels turn. So this is a really impactful experience for Gallatin, and he will need it in the years to come. Now, Dungan describes this period in Gallatin's political career as follows, quote, Gallatin's work in the Pennsylvania legislature presaged multiple elements of his future career, his specialization in finance, his insistence on reduction of the public debt and the repayment of all monies due, his preference for a central bank that safeguarded public funds from the whim of the legislature, his parliamentary role as secretary or scribe, his interest in education, and his belief in the importance of infrastructure, then known as internal improvements. Now, he would spend his three terms in the state legislature arguing in support of Western issues versus the more established and mercantile Eastern interests. And so he's really starting to establish himself. And really, this, these themes are going to play out in Gallatin's future career you know, as we go along. Unfortunately, yet another personal setback and loss. In December 1792, he considered a return to Geneva because he received the news of the death of his grandfather and his aunt. But hearing from Miss Pictet about the upheaval raging across Western Europe in the wake of the French Revolution, he ultimately opted against this. This would actually work in Gallatin's favor because that meant that he was still in the U.S. when Pennsylvania political circles in early 1793 started talking about Gallatin for a new role. Senator William McClay had only served two years in the U.S. Senate, but due to the draw for the three classes of senators, this meant that then as now, a third of the body was up for election every two years. And McClay was one of those who he had drawn the short straw and his term was only two years. And so his term was up in March of 1791. However, Due to a deadlock over the decision over how his successor should be chosen, this seat had sat empty for two years. And in early 1793, finally, the political leaders in Pennsylvania came to a compromise, and the state legislature was set to elect a new senator. And so these leaders in the state legislature started thinking they're like, this guy Gallatin has been making a name for himself. You know, he's been pretty impressive. And so at a caucus meeting, Gallatin's name was put up for consideration. Gallatin was a bit more hesitant. He was like, you know, there probably are some better people that you can choose from. And he was also concerned that he was not constitutionally eligible to be a U.S. Senator. According to the Constitution, in Article 1, Section 3, quote, no person shall be a senator, who shall not have been nine years a citizen of the United States. Now, at this point, you know, Gallatin had become a citizen in October 1785, which meant that he had only been a citizen for just over seven years at this point. So Gallatin was like, guys, I, this may not be my time. I, I don't think I qualify. But that didn't stop them. And the state legislature chose him as the new U.S. senator from Pennsylvania, by a vote of 45 to 37. Now, at the time, the national capital was in Philadelphia, and so Gallatin was quite familiar with that city. And he continued to work in the state legislature through the summer of 1793, and that was both in the larger body and in legislative committees. But he also engaged in some social activities around this time, both in Philadelphia and on a brief trip up the coast to Albany, New York. And it was around this time while he was stopping over in New York City that he was invited to the home of Commodore James Nicholson. And that's where he met Nicholson's 25-year-old daughter, Hannah. As described by Dungan, quote, Gallatin was smitten. From Hannah's standpoint, Gallatin constituted a very suitable match. 32 years old, he had been elected a U.S. Senator from the very same political persuasion as Hannah's eminent family. He was highly intelligent, if not especially handsome, he was gentle and sincere, even if dreamy and indolent. So, this seems like a good match. And when Albert asked for Hannah's hand in marriage, they were soon engaged, but their wedding would be held off for a few months because Gallatin wanted to finish up his work in the state legislature and he wanted to prepare to assume his seat in the Senate. Now, I said that this was the summer of 1793. And that may sound familiar to some regular listeners of the podcast because that is the summer of the Great Yellow Fever epidemic in Philadelphia. And Gallatin would remain in that city until the state legislature adjourned on September 2nd, and he traveled to New York City, and he was planning on going to Friendship Hill from there, but he soon found himself ill with yellow fever, and to prevent him from being, quote, quarantined with other infected persons in temporary hospitals set up on one of the islands in New York Harbor, Colonel Nicholson, his soon-to-be father-in-law, brought Gallatin into his home and arranged for his care during his recovery. And so, you know, yellow fever was raging and so many people were infected. Gallatin was one of those folks, but thankfully Gallatin did recover from this. And when he recovered, he and Hannah decided to push up the date of their wedding. And so they were wed on November 11th. And so this is a key point in Gallatin's life. You know, he's about to become a U.S. Senator. He's now found a new wife. He's ready to really start a new chapter in his life. And on December 2nd, Gallatin did assume his seat in the U.S. Senate when it convened in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, and Gallatin had tried to tell him, his swearing in was also accompanied by the reading of a petition from, quote, 19 citizens of York County in eastern Pennsylvania who, quote, objected to Gallatin's election as senator on the ground that he had not been a citizen for nine years at the time he was elected. Now, as the 19 who signed the petition were all Federalist and Gallatin was a Democratic Republican, it was clear that there was a political motivation to this action. But nevertheless, the Senate did have to consider this question, and the position was referred to a committee composed of Federalist Senators. So you can imagine how that went.
0: Not well, I assume.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, not not well for Gallatin, because it did not take them long. On December 31st, they reported back to the full Senate, confirming Gallatin's ineligibility for office. Wah, wah. I know, right? <laughs>
0: and I assume that's the end of his entire career, and <laughs> right?
1: Oh, but yeah. yeah that's, that's,
0: this is the end of the Democratic-Republican Party. He's never going to get another opportunity.
1: He did nothing else. Nothing else. And it didn't even end his Senate career at this point because it did not immediately lead to Gallatin's removal from office because the Senate as a whole had to vote on a motion. And Gallatin decided, you know what, I know this is coming, but I'm not just gonna sit here and warm the seat. He was a U.S. Senator by heaven, and he intended to act as one. And so on January 8, 1794, Gallatin quote, introduced a motion in the Senate in keeping with his views on sound financial management, calling for detailed reports in four broad categories for every year since 1789. One, Outstanding domestic debt divided in six categories. Two, domestic debt that had been redeemed, again, under specific categories. Three, foreign debt, similarly broken down into categories. And four, actual receipts and expenditures for each branch of the government, the comparison of expenditures to appropriations, and a statement of the balances remaining in each treasury account. Not asking for much, is he?
0: Yeah, that doesn't seem like a... An especially crazy request.
1: I mean, and at this point, Alexander Hamilton was still Secretary of the Treasury. So, I mean, he could probably whip that out in a couple of days. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, needless to say, this made the Federalists and the national government quite irate, especially since this was coming from a senator who would be ruled ineligible for a seat any day now. But Gallatin was actually successful in getting this bill pushed through. And it was adopted by the Senate on January 20th. I mean, you got to give him marks for gumption here.
0: I mean, and it worked out, so.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I said Hamilton was still Secretary of the Treasury, and he actually he decided to dismiss this call. And he wrote a letter to the President of the Senate on February 22nd, citing the difficulty of compiling such reports due to strains put on the department's bandwidth Due to regular business, coupled with the still they were still recovering from the disruptions of the yellow fever epidemic, and he also cited pressing foreign affair concerns. He couldn't stop himself, however, from noting that such reports should not be demanded of the Treasury Secretary, quote, unless the officer was understood to have forfeited his title to a reasonable and common degree of confidence. So basically, Hamilton was saying, not only do I not have time and my people don't have time to pull all this together, you should only be doing this if you think that I'm doing something wrong. So is that what you're saying? Mm. Yeah, he's kind of, he's pushing back and kind of offering up this other challenge. And, you know, you can imagine that Gallatin probably would have responded to that if the shoe didn't drop. and. Unfortunately, you know, that was February 22nd, and a few days later, on February 28th, the Senate, by a vote of 14 to 12, voted Gallatin out of the legislative body. Now, as it turns out, Gallatin's fellow senator from Pennsylvania, Robert Morris, who was a Federalist, he had previously pledged to remain neutral on the question, but Morris ultimately cast a vote against Gallatin despite the fact that a senator who would have voted in Gallatin's favor, Benjamin Hawkins of North Carolina, had to leave Philadelphia prior to the vote. So if Morris hadn't voted, and Hawkins had, the vote would have been a tie to be broken by Vice President Adams. So this is John Adams. And even though Adams was a Federalist, Adams had pledged to vote for Gallatin to remain. So even though there was a sense that, you know, Gallatin was going to be voted out, it came pretty close to him not being voted out if things had worked out a little differently. But it didn't. And so now Gallatin is out of the Senate. And with this temporary halt to his political career, he took his new wife back to New York, stayed with her family before returning to Philadelphia, took care of some business there, and then he headed back west. Now, remember, Gallatin still had that land in Virginia. And in a rather ironic twist, when he was ready to sell that land, the buyer was none other than Senator Robert Morris, his former colleague who had turned on him. I imagine, and don't know for certain, Gallatin probably would have preferred to sell it to somebody else, but Morris was apparently the only taker for the sell. So he's like begrudgingly, yeah, just give me your money. We're not going to do any chit chat. Let's just
0: move on. Yeah, it must have been a pretty awkward business dealing, right? Like, yeah. hey, uh, sorry I just screwed over your political career. Can I have your uh, land now? <laughs>
1: yeah, how about we up the price a little bit? I, I, I think you owe me. <laughs> uh. But with that done, business kind of settled. Albert and Hannah then set out for Friendship Hill in early May 1794. Again, longtime listeners of the podcast. Early May 1794 may sound like a familiar time, because this was the time the Whiskey Rebellion was stirring up, and though Fayette County chose to abide by the federal law which placed an excise tax on whiskey, other counties in the region did not, and instead rose up in insurrection. Now, Gallatin was in favor of abiding by the law and said as such in public meetings, which put him at risk for reprisal. And indeed, he attended one meeting in Brownsville on August 28th that was particularly tense. And Dungan asserts that, quote, Gallatin's life was very much in danger. Thankfully for Gallatin and anybody who was in support of the federal government, the situation would settle because President Washington and Treasury Secretary Hamilton led a force of 13,000 into the region and this insurrection quickly dissipated. Meanwhile, Gallatin's retirement from public life proved to be a short one because in October 1794, he was elected to not one, but two offices. Fayette County elected him back to his old seat in the Pennsylvania State Legislature at the same time as the Western Congressional District elected him to the U.S. House of Representatives. And this was a body for which he was constitutionally eligible to serve. So he's being elected to two offices at the same time. But instead of picking one or the other, Gallatin decided, I'll assume both. And so the state legislature met in January 1795, and so he served in that body until the U.S. House of Representatives reconvened in December. So he's like, this isn't an either-or. This is a yes-and. I'm assuming both seats.
0: I I was going to ask, how can you even do that? Like that? (laughs) (laughs) Someone must been like, hey, wait a minute. (laughs)
1: And that's one thing to learn about Gallatin, where there's a will, Gallatin will find a way. And that was the loophole. You know, This the session of the state legislature started earlier, so he'd serve in there until it was time to resign from that seat and join the other one. So, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, even though this was a time, you know, he's back on the political rise again, he did receive some sad news from Geneva. first. Of course, the French Revolution continued unrest, but more personally, he received the news that Miss Piquet, the woman who had been the mother figure in his life, had fallen ill and passed away. So, this is a time. I mean, things are changing for Gallatin, and it really does feel like you know things are starting to move on. He's growing more mature. He's growing into this political career, and. It really does seem like December 7th, when he assumed that seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, Gallatin's life was firmly on this new tack, this new path. Because when Gallatin entered the House, it was in the latter part of the Washington presidency, and this was a time that divisions between the factions were becoming quite stark. Up until this point, Representative James Madison of Virginia had been the legislative leader for the Democratic-Republicans. But Madison was getting more focused on making Thomas Jefferson the next president in 1796. And so Gallatin came into the picture in the House just at the time that Monroe was setting down this baton and Gallatin picked it up because the Democratic Republicans had some work to do because this was the point that they were debating the Jay Treaty. The Jay Treaty had been negotiated with Great Britain by Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay to alleviate tensions between the U.S. and Britain. And though it left many questions unanswered, it did at least keep the two nations from going to war again. Now, technically, the Senate was the only body by the Constitution that had the authority to approve the treaty. So the Senate had already done that. But Democratic Republicans realized that since the treaty required an appropriation of funds to enact it, and since appropriation bills had to originate in the House, this gave them an opportunity to kill the treaty. Gallatin would work to rally the Democratic-Republicans, rally support around killing this treaty. Ultimately, this appropriation bill would pass by a narrow margin, and the treaty would go into effect But this really established Gallatin as the incoming floor leader for the Democratic Republicans. So he's really in this new phase of his career. He is now this established floor leader, and they've got a presidential election coming up. And so, Gallatin, as part of this election effort, he completed work on a study of the American economic system, which was published as A Sketch of the Finances of the United States. As described by Dungan, it quote, ran to 170 pages of detail on every aspect of the American economy, including sources of revenues, expenditures, and debts, together with close to 20 appended tables. Gallatin composed it for the education of his own political party, but it also served to assert his preeminence as an expert on government finance. And he used this opportunity to express his concerns about the public debt and asserted that it should be paid back, quote, as quickly as possible. Now, just keep this in mind because we will be coming back to this very shortly. The close of the Washington administration would also see a personal change for the Gallatins, as their first child, a son named James, was born on December 18th, 1796. They would ultimately have six children total, though two of their daughters died in infancy. And so this is really a, a new time for Gallatin, and he's establishing himself as the floor leader, And it becomes really apparent because James Madison retired from the U.S. House of Representatives. And so that meant that Gallatin was firmly established as this leader in the House. He would adopt a more behind-the-scenes strategy as Democratic-Republicans attacked one policy after another put forward by the Adams administration and Federalists in Congress. But as noted by Dungan, quote, He continued to make demands on the Treasury Department for detailed data, much to the discomfiture of Secretary Walcott. And he would also directly attack policies such as the expansion of the Army and the Navy during the Quasi-War because this expansion led to an expansion of the national debt. And that was something that Gallatin was completely against. Some in his party saw Gallatin as being the intended target of the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were put forward and passed by Federalists in Congress due to his foreign birth, but I haven't found any evidence that there was any intention to use these new laws against Gallatin, though his status as an immigrant to the U.S. would be used by enemies time and again throughout his career as an attack point, and he was certainly considered an odious figure by Federalist leaders at the time. While he was leading efforts in the legislature to advance the Democratic-Republican cause, Gallatin also had to work on his personal finances as the person that he had trusted to attend his business affairs in western Pennsylvania was only incurring more debt for him rather than helping him to accrue more assets. So not only is he fighting against debt on a national level, he's also having to fight against his own personal debt. Now, The 1800 election would find Gallatin having to lean ever more into this role as a party leader because despite the victory of the Democratic-Republican ticket in the presidential campaign, because at the time the electoral votes were not designated between candidates for president and vice president, but rather all the electoral votes were in a common pool, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr ended up with the same number of electoral votes and thus the election was thrown into the House of Representatives to resolve. So Gallatin, as the Democratic-Republican leader and as somebody who was affiliated with Jefferson and Madison, he worked feverishly on Jefferson's behalf. And finally, in February 1801, after 36 ballots, Jefferson was chosen as the third president of the United States. Now, in turn, when Jefferson began pulling together his cabinet, He had only one person in mind to assume the post of Secretary of the Treasury. And in this case, it really wasn't a matter of quid pro quo because Gallatin had led the support efforts for him in the House. It was that Jefferson genuinely respected that Gallatin was the undisputed expert amongst the Democratic Republicans of the nation's finances. You know, Gallatin really was the party's answer to Alexander Hamilton. This was the guy that you wanted as Secretary of the Treasury. The problem with this, however, would be how to get Gallatin confirmed. Because Federalists not only didn't like Gallatin, they were also still stinging from the loss of the presidency to Jefferson. And so they saw this as an opportunity that they may be able to get some revenge on Gallatin and Jefferson and the Democratic-Republicans in general again, where there's a will, Gallatin somehow finds a way because Jefferson realized, so there is a secretary of the treasury in place. And at this point, it's Samuel Dexter. He was the last secretary of the treasury under John Adams. And so Jefferson asked Dexter to stay on a bit longer as the treasury secretary. And he waited until the Senate was out of session And then Dexter could resign and Jefferson could appoint Gallatin in a recess appointment. And so that was his way of getting around, putting his name up for nomination and having the Senate vote on it. Because with this recess appointment, that would give them time because with the recess happening, yeah, I think it went into recess beginning of April, end of March, early April, the Senate wouldn't come back in session until the end of the year. And so at that point, Gallatin would have already been Secretary of the Treasury for quite a bit, and the Senate would have a hard time with somebody who was doing well at the job and who had been at the job for months at a time to say, no, he's not going to be Secretary of the Treasury. So that was their way of kind of getting around that, finding a loophole to get Gallatin in office. Even though Gallatin technically wasn't Secretary of the Treasury at the time, that Jefferson was inaugurated, he was still in Washington, D.C. around that time and conferred with the new president and some of his soon-to-be colleagues in the administration, trying to help them to get up to speed before traveling back to Friendship Hill to tend to personal matters and to get his family ready to travel to the nation's capital for the duration. Now, at this time, Hannah was pregnant and she had two young children that she was already taken care of. They had a three-year-old and a four-month-old. Despite this, she still traveled with Gallatin from Western Pennsylvania overland to Washington, D.C. And you can imagine this was not a pleasant trip for her. It wasn't pleasant for anybody. Going overland at this point was pretty shaky.
0: Literally. Yeah. (laughs) Literally the carriage shaking on the road. (laughs) Exactly.
1: It was not, I mean, oh my gosh, I I don't even want to think about (laughs) hundreds and hundreds of miles of that.
0: Yeah, poor Hannah, for real. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But she did it, they got there, and upon his arrival, Gallatin was appointed as head of the Treasury Department, and he assumed office on May 15th, 1801. Now, to give us some context, at the time, as noted by Dungan, of those based in the nation's capital, quote, the total number of central government officials and clerks was only about 125 people. Of these, nearly 80 were the Washington staff of the Treasury, whose staff of agents around the country numbered more than 1,200. So, though this seems small when compared to the modern U.S. Treasury, Gallatin's department was by far the largest in the federal government at the time, and Gallatin would use this apparatus to the benefit of one of President Jefferson's key aims in his four-point financial policy. And this financial policy was described by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone as follows. 1. Strict governmental economy. 2. Tax reduction. 3. Definite provision for the retirement of the national debt. And four, specific rather than general appropriations. Now, this fourth point in particular was a key emphasis for Gallatin. As noted by historian Leonard White, quote, Gallatin was strict in the use of funds appropriated to the Treasury Department. Every specification was to him a binding directive from which he never varied. And this was quite different from the former Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton who basically saw any funds coming into the Treasury Department, even if it was stipulated for a certain purpose, once it's in the Treasury, he could move it around as he pleased. Hamilton didn't really feel like he even had to consult with then-President Washington about it. So this is a quite different viewpoint between these two Treasury secretaries. But let's go back to that second point, tax reduction, because Jefferson and Gallatin actually found themselves slightly at odds over this one. President Jefferson, upon coming to office, wanted to swiftly repeal all internal taxes. And these internal taxes have been put into place under the previous Federalist administrations. Jefferson was like, let's just go ahead and get rid of all of them. Now, while this move would be highly popular, and, you know, we even see it in the modern day when people talk tax breaks, the public generally likes that. So that would have been of political benefit to the Democratic-Republicans, but Secretary Gallatin argued against the immediate repeal, likely in order to have time to plan out a full fiscal policy, which would ensure that enough funds would be available to the government to pay off the national debt. So Gallatin was like, okay, let's hold off until we really know, really get a plan in place and make sure that we have what we need to pay off the national debt. Still, as noted by Malone, Gallatin understood, quote, that unless taxes were reduced by this administration, they never would be, and he recognized practical advantages in getting rid of all the internal taxes at one time, since the collection of a part of them would be disproportionately expensive. Another caveat about this financial policy that they were putting together, you know, going ahead and removing internal taxes, paying off the national debt, being more responsible, fiscally responsible. Gallatin understood that this financial policy was predicated on the United States remaining at peace with other nations, and to help to ensure that, Gallatin did not hesitate to exert influence on the two departments that would be called on during wartime, which is the War and Navy Departments, to ensure that the forces at their disposal were only large enough for national defense, not to take an offensive stance against other nations. So Gallatin was like, okay, I know we need an army and a navy, but do we really need a big one? What is the bare minimum that we need for national defense? Keywords national defense. Now, this was an easy enough prospect for the War Department because the Secretary of War, Henry Dearborn, who we discussed in a previous episode, was on board with shrinking the size of the army. The navy, however, would be a tougher sell because One of the early decisions of the new president and his cabinet was to send a squadron to North Africa following the declaration of war by Tripoli against the United States. To give us some background here, basically, there were four city states. They were nearly autonomous on the North African coast. They've been dubbed the Barbary states. And these have been a problem for decades, not just for the United States, but for European nations as their governments demanded tribute to ensure that the merchant ships of each respective nation engaged in the lucrative Mediterranean trade were not attacked. Now, during the Washington administration, treaties had been negotiated with each of these states to pay tribute in exchange for this guarantee of protection. But in February 1801, the Pasha of Tripoli, Yusuf Karamanli, had repudiated this agreement that was reached with the United States and demanded an even greater tribute. And that happened from time to time with these North African states. They would say, you know what, we had this treaty, null and void, give us more. With President Jefferson, however, Kermond Lee found someone who was willing, quote, to rely on the strength of our own arm. Gallatin initially agreed with this proposal to send the squadron. But as the bill started adding up, and it would take quite a bit to actually send and supply a squadron in the Mediterranean year after year. I mean, this was pretty costly. Gallatin starts to grow wary and started advocating for a peace agreement, which actually put him at odds with Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith. Smith argued that the fight against Tripoli was essential to boosting the United States' reputation internationally. Thus, Smith pushed for an even greater force, asserting that, quote, a feeble force will subject us to suspicion of purchasing a peace. Historian Alexander Blinky noted that, quote, Gallatin began his fiscal thinking with the proposition that a national debt was an unmitigated evil, especially considering that, to that point, it had only been used for war expenditures, which was something Gallatin, quote, regarded as totally destructive but there was also a use for civil expenditure, which was something that Gallatin deemed quote unproductive, conferring no direct benefit on the people. With this in mind, one can understand the following quote from Gallatin later in his cabinet career, where he asserted that quote whilst peace continues, the aggregate of the expenditure of those other executive departments be kept within bounds such as will preserve the equilibrium between the national revenue and expenditure." Without recurrence to loans. I cannot consent to act the part of a mere financier, to become a contriver of taxes, a dealer of loans, a seeker of resources for the purpose of supporting useless baubles. So Gallatin was saying the national debt that had been incurred to date was a waste because it was either being wasted on war, which was just destructive just to build out this greater and expanded national government, which didn't really serve the public's interest. And here we have this early, you know, that we've got this Mediterranean squadron going and launching assaults on Tripoli. And this is going to be expensive. This is, you know, he knows this is going to be costly. So Gallatin has a fight on his hands. You know, this is a time that Gallatin is really stressing we need to shrink the size of government while we're engaged in a war. But despite this war against Tripoli, Gallatin actually was successful in his push to shrink the size of the U.S. Navy, even if it never got as small as the Treasury Secretary would have wished. As proof of that, from 1801 to 1802, expenditures for the Navy Department dropped by half. So he's starting to see results. But because of this, Gallatin's relationship with Smith would only worsen, especially with Gallatin writing the president, complaining about his cabinet colleague and asserting that, quote, I cannot discover any approach towards reform in that department, i.e. the Navy. This is going to be something that we're going to come back to later in his cabinet career because this antagonism between Gallatin and Robert Smith would continue and would also expand to Robert Smith's brother, who was a powerful senator from Maryland, Samuel Smith. So Gallatin has a lot going on already as Treasury Secretary. But in addition to his duties at the Treasury Department, President Jefferson entrusted to Gallatin and a couple of his cabinet colleagues additional responsibilities in working to resolve what has come to be known as the Yazoo Affair. To put it succinctly, basically, Due to bribes and undue influence on the Georgia state legislature, land in what is now modern day Mississippi and Alabama, and it was referred to at the time as the Yazoo lands, was sold to land speculators. But when the truth about the circumstances behind the sale came out, many of the votes in the state legislature were voted out in favor of candidates against the land sale, and this new legislature passed a bill invalidating the sale approved by the previous session. But this created a dispute in terms of land claims, as the land speculators had already started selling lands to other buyers. But meanwhile, you've got the Georgia state legislature also trying to sell the same land. So there's all kinds of disputes and confusion with this. And Congress had authorized three commissioners to be named by the president to resolve the issue. And this was around the time that the Adams administration was wrapping up. And so this was something that Jefferson inherited. And so he named Gallatin along with Secretary of State James Madison and Attorney General Levi Lincoln as the new federal commissioners. So after negotiations with the representatives from Georgia, they drafted the articles of agreement and session. These were signed on April 24, 1802, and the terms of this agreement included Georgia's cession of all the Western lands, again, most of modern day Mississippi and Alabama, to the federal government in exchange for one million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And one tenth of the ASU lands were also set aside, quote, for the purpose of satisfying, quieting, or compensating any claims which may be made to the said lands or to any part thereof. And so Madison, Gallatin, and Lincoln were able to report these articles to Congress on february sixteenth, eighteen oh three, and they recommended that claimants should quote, be allowed to choose compensation either in the form of land or in money not exceeding five million dollars to be derived from the sale of lands in the Mississippi Territory. And Congress would approve setting aside 5 million acres to settle claims. But this agreement did nothing to resolve the conflict and instead sparked a new debate at the federal level over whether the original claimants should be compensated anything. And so they tried to resolve this issue, came to an agreement, it would continue being a thing. And It would be one of the things that would cause a further rift in the Democratic Republican Party on the federal level moving on. Now, you know, I said that Gallatin was against federal expenditures. He didn't see a need in expending for war or just to expand the bureaucracy, but he did see federal expenditures as justified and beneficial with internal improvements such as roads and canals. Thus, Secretary Gallatin supported a scheme to have one-tenth of the proceeds from land sales in Ohio go towards the construction of roads to connect the area that would become a state in 1803 to the eastern states. Now, Gallatin pushed for one-tenth, Congress bumped it down to one-twentieth, but these funds would ultimately be used to build the road that became known as either the Cumberland Road or the National Road. So, Gallatin was instrumental in making this happen. He was also essential in securing the funding that would be needed to achieve one of, if not arguably the greatest achievement in the Jefferson presidency, which was the Louisiana Purchase. We're not going to go into the details of the purchase here because that will really be covered more in James Monroe's episode, but suffice it to say, the deal was $15 million for the purchase of what is now one-third of the continental U.S. Now, Gallatin played a couple of roles here. First, along with his fellow cabinet members, Gallatin helped to ensure that the purchase treaty went through because he helped to talk Jefferson back from the ledge because Jefferson was like, well, I mean, this is a great deal, but can we constitutionally do this? And so Jefferson started pushing for, well, maybe we need a constitutional amendment before we can do this. But as described by Malone, quote, the secretary of the treasury, who was such a stickler for finances regularly tentatively assumed a constitutional position which was virtually indistinguishable from the liberal construction of his predecessor, Hamilton. Gallatin boiled his opinion down to three key points. First, that the United States as a nation have an inherent right to acquire territory. Second, that whenever that acquisition is by treaty, the same constituted authorities in whom the treaty-making power is vested, have a constitutional right to sanction the acquisition. Third, that whenever the territory has been acquired, Congress have the power either of admitting into the union as a new state or of annexing to a state with the consent of that state or of making regulations for the government of such territory. So Gallatin is saying it's not written into the constitution because it's just inherent. Of course, we have the right to acquire more lands and to bring it into the union. But Gallatin's other role in this deal was in making provision for the financial transaction between the U.S. and France, because according to the treaty, a small portion of the $15 million went towards, quote, satisfying claims that Americans held against France. But $11.25 million of this was to be paid to France by the U.S., quote, not in cash, but in 6% loan stock, not redeemable for 15 years. Gallatin objected to this because he knew that though the stock wasn't redeemable, it could be sold for cash, which would help to finance France's war against Britain, which ultimately is exactly what France did. And this would put the U.S. in a kind of awkward position because they're indirectly helping to fund the French war effort. But there was really little that Gallatin could do about it because those were the terms. So in the fall of 1803, Gallatin met with the British banker Alexander Baring. Baring was in the U.S. to negotiate the terms for, quote, purchasing and distributing the American bonds. And Baring, along with the Dutch Bank Hoping Company, were chosen for this purpose. Though Gallatin was a proponent of the Louisiana Purchase, this large new expenditure threw off his figures for paying off the national debt, and it pushed that goal even further down the road. But despite this, at the end of Jefferson's first term, Treasury Secretary Gallatin was able to report to Congress that the annual budget was in the black, with revenues surpassing expenditures by just over a million dollars. So starting to see success, Jefferson's reelected to a new term, but this second term would bring its share of opportunities as well as new challenges. Personally, the Gallatin family would face its share of sorrow in the Jefferson presidency. Because the Gallatins' first daughter, Catherine, who had been born in August 1801, had died the following spring, and their second daughter, Frances, who was born in February 1803, she would survive until adulthood, but the Gallatins would suffer the loss of two more daughters within a year of their birth. So one was born in 1804, one was born in 1807, and so quite a bit of loss for the Gallatin family. Though he was diligent and hardworking in his role at the Treasury and often remained at his desk long hours, Gallatin also enjoyed the opportunity that his role presented, quote, in receiving distinguished visitors. So here we have Gallatin's key role in the Jefferson presidency, but President Jefferson and Gallatin would have a few points of difference, and one was their views on the Bank of the United States. Gallatin, even as he was ascending the ranks in the Democratic-Republican faction, had defended the Bank of the United States, while Jefferson remained bitterly opposed to the institution. And in addition to defending the bank within the administration, Gallatin had even ensured that a branch was opened in New Orleans over the president's objections. Now, unfortunately, the governor of the Orleans Territory, William C.C. Claiborne, undermined Gallatin's efforts by authorizing another bank, the Louisiana Bank, which would compete with the Bank of the United States branch in the strong but still limited market of New Orleans. But Gallatin's greatest responsibility and greatest threat in the second term would prove to be the Embargo Act. This act was a landmark point of the Jefferson presidency that was necessitated by the growing tensions between the U.S. and Britain as the first decade of the 19th century went on, and would actually also be one opposed by Gallatin. As noted by Dungan, quote, Gallatin opposed the embargo for both domestic and international reasons. He believed it would have no taming effect on Britain at all and would produce precisely the damage to the American economy that in actuality came to pass. As we've seen in the narrative series, Gallatin was right. This was awful. It was an unmitigated disaster for both the administration and the nation. Further, it proved to be detrimental to Gallatin's financial plans for the nation. Because total exports for the U.S. had reached an all time high of 108 million in 1807. That high dropped to 22.4 million in 1808. Even worse was the drop in imports from 138.5 million in 1807 to 57 million in 1808, which meant that tariff revenue from imports, which was the key income for the federal government at the time, fell from a peak of 17 million to $7.7 million. So trade is going down. Money coming into the federal government is going down. And worse, enforcing the embargo meant that national expenditures outside of paying down the national debt climbed from $4.9 million in 1807 to $7.5 million in 1809. So this not only curtailed the government's ability to pay back the national debt, which was one of Gallatin's key focus areas, but as described by Blinky, put, quote, the Treasury almost overnight in a worse position than it had been in since 1789. So this is just, it's a bad time for the Treasury Department and it's a bad time for Gallatin. And starting in 1809, the federal government started to run a deficit. Though Gallatin would try to keep a rein on federal expenditures and revenues would tick back up following the embargo's repeal in March 1809, Due to not only continued but increasing tensions with Britain and France in subsequent years, government revenues would remain down from where they should be to get the Treasury back in the black. We'll expand on that a bit more in a minute, but let's discuss the transition from the Jefferson presidency to the Madison presidency. So Madison coming in, he wanted Gallatin, he had worked well with him, and he actually wanted to transition him to the State Department which was the role that Madison was vacating. But Gallatin had made some powerful enemies over the years, including those Smith brothers that we had discussed earlier, the secretary of the navy and his brother the senator. So Senator Smith and other prominent Democrat Republican leaders, they opposed Gallatin for numerous reasons including but not limited to his foreign birth. They were like, we can't trust this guy. This, you know, he's not one of us. He's foreign. He's one of those Europeans. Thus, when it became clear that Gallatin's confirmation as Secretary of State was iffy in the Senate, President Madison had to consider an alternative. And he turned to Robert Smith to move over to the State Department. Now, this really would do little to placate Senator Smith and the folks that were starting to oppose the administration in Congress. But we'll talk more about that in Robert Smith's episode. But just know that Robert Smith got the role at the State Department that Gallatin really wanted, and Gallatin, since he was already at the Treasury Department, just remained in that role. But this put Gallatin in a very embarrassing position. He had been denied this post that he had really won it, and one of his political enemies was now in a position which was starting to be seen at the time as a stepping stone to the presidency. And Gallatin really had to wonder at his effectiveness now. You know, he's got the key legislative leaders from his own faction in opposition to him. Things aren't going well in the Treasury. And so he admitted that he was considering leaving the cabinet. But former President Jefferson worked to convince him to stay, writing in October 1809 that, quote, it would be indeed a great public calamity were it to fix you in the purpose which you seem to think possible. I consider the fortunes of our Republic as depending in an eminent degree on the extinguishment of the public debt before we engage in any war. The discharge of the debt is vital to the destinies of our government, and it hangs on Mr. Madison and yourself alone. We shall never see another President and Secretary of the Treasury making all other objects subordinate to this. Were either of you to be lost to the public, that great hope is lost. And so you've got Jefferson saying, y'all are the people to make this happen. The future of our nation depends on you and Madison. No pressure, no pressure at all. And so Gallatin did continue in the Madison administration, but this just, it just kept compounding. It kept getting worse for him. But even though he wasn't in that role at the State Department, Gallatin would really be the president's chief advisor. And this was something that caused continued consternation with the Smiths and their allies as Gallatin used his influence and connections to orchestrate an attack on the Smiths. They were accused of corruption in using Robert's previous role as secretary of the Navy in order to unduly benefit Senator Smith's mercantile firm. So he was saying, there's something going on with these brothers, you know, he's using his public position to benefit his brother's private business. And this attack was at the time that Senator Smith was up for re-election and was facing some difficulty in his bid. So, these political back and forth, this, you know, attack ads, this is nothing new. This was happening even at this time. Ultimately, Smith would see it through, he would return to the Senate. But now he had even more reason than ever to despise Gallatin. In addition to these political problems, the Madison administration was also struggling with what to do about their continued bad relations with Britain and France. And with the repeal of the Embargo Act, another attempt at economic coercion was put forward in the Non-Intercourse Act. But this was highly flawed as well. They tried it for a year, nothing was happening. And so Gallatin actually wrote a replacement bill that he gave to Representative Nathaniel Macon, Democratic Republican from North Carolina, to be introduced in the House. Now, this bill, which was dubbed Macon's Bill Number 1, was, as described by Dungan, quote, a short-term diplomatic negotiation ploy, wherein harsh restrictions would have been implemented against British and French shipping, with the caveat that the president was empowered to lift them if either nation removed their own trade restrictions against the U.S. Had it been passed when it was put forward in mid-December 1809, it would have expired just a few months later on March 4th, 1810. This bill didn't make it through, but then Gallatin tried again with another bill, and this one would be known as Macon's Bill No. 2. Rather than imposing restrictions on the front end, this bill kind of approached it from another angle. Once a deal was reached with either Britain or France, the president would be empowered to impose non-intercourse on the other nation. And so this was seen as a carrot. So let's make a deal and then I will put in restrictions on your enemy. This bill was passed on May 1st, 1810. Unfortunately for Madison and Gallatin, this didn't work out quite as well as they would have hoped because French Emperor Napoleon used this opportunity and instructed his foreign minister, the Duke de Cador, to send a letter to U.S. Minister to France Armstrong, alluding to exempting American shipping from decrees he had issued if they imposed, quote, prohibitions on British commerce if the British didn't repeal their orders in council. So Napoleon was basically saying, you know, I would consider doing exactly what you want if you agree to go ahead and impose these restrictions. And when... Word reached Madison about this through unofficial channels. He actually kind of jumped the gun a bit. He didn't wait for an official report from Armstrong and instead just issued a proclamation accepting Napoleon's order at face value. Oh, well, Napoleon's saying that he's going to lift these restrictions. He's going to give us what we want. Let's go ahead and impose non-intercourse on Britain if the British government didn't repeal their own orders by February 1811. Now, Napoleon pulled this trick with the U.S. and others over the years. He had no intention of doing this. Instead, and and he had no intention of helping American commerce either, because he stepped up the sale of American ships that had been seized by the French with the proceeds going into his treasury. This was a classic Napoleon move. Make people think that you're going to do something, and then... Completely stab him in the back and still get what you want. And Armstrong, the U.S. minister to France at the time, he realized this was exactly what was happening and his government was just giving in to Napoleon. And he finally said, Forget it. I'm done. I'm going home. Though the months went by with neither the British repealing their orders nor proof arriving that Napoleon was rescinding his decrees against American shipping, and this put President Madison between a rock and a hard place. He ultimately did issue a proclamation ending legal trade between the U.S. and Great Britain, and this set the nations on the path of war. So, things are just not looking good for Madison, for Gallatin, and then Gallatin finds himself enveloped in another political debate, this one over the renewal of the Charter of the Bank of the United States. Now, as I said earlier, Secretary Gallatin had recognized it as, quote, a convenient instrument for managing the nation's fiscal concerns. And so he was supporting the recharter of the bank. And he actually had other Democratic-Republicans that joined him in this. But the anti-bank faction saw the bank's creation in 1791 as, quote, a constitutional mistake that needed to be rectified. And this anti-bank faction ultimately prevailed. The House rejected recharter in January 1811 by one vote. And on February 20th, 1811, Vice President George Clinton cast the tie-breaking vote rejecting recharter in the Senate. So this key portion of the nation's fiscal policy is now out of play and we're about to go to war. This is not good. Gallatin realizes he is not in a good place. And so on March 4th, 1811, he wrote to the president that, quote, I have long and seriously reflected on the present state of things and on my personal situation. This has for some time been sufficiently unpleasant and nothing but a sense of public duty and attachment to yourself could have induced me to retain it to this day. But I am convinced that in neither respect can I be any longer useful under existing circumstances. He critiqued the current executive branch by asserting that, quote, your present administration is defective. A radical and speedy remedy has become absolutely necessary. What that ought to be is not for me to say. And so Gallatin is saying, you know what? I'm done. This is a complete disaster. There's probably something you can do. Wink, wink. I'm not going to tell you what you need to do. Wink, wink. And Madison realizes he's got to keep Gallatin. To him, Gallatin is essential, and so the president decides to take that, quote, radical and speedy action. Thus, he rejects Gallatin's resignation and actually charges him with approaching James Monroe as being the new Secretary of State. If Gallatin and Robert Smith can't get along together, Madison is going to choose Gallatin, and he actually convinces you know, once he knows that Monroe is going to take the post, Madison meets with Robert Smith on March twentieth and offers him a diplomatic post if he would agree to leave the office. And again, we'll get more into that with Smith's episode, but on April first, Smith left office, Monroe assumed the post of Secretary of State. But Smith wasn't gone just yet. Now that he was actually freed of any obligations to the administration, he launched a full-throated attack on the Madison administration with his address to the people of the United States in late June. Smith would ultimately lose the PR war against Madison and Gallatin, but this attack came at a time of growing uncertainty where the administration would need all the public support they could muster. So Madison's doing the shakeup, trying to get things back in line, but conditions are just, it's going from bad to worse. Gallatin was able to report some success in his decade long effort at fiscal austerity in his annual report in November, eighteen eleven. In his tenure to date, half of the public debt that had been in place when he assumed office had been paid off, and all internal taxes on U.S. citizens had been done away with. However, Gallatin saw some bad signs ahead. He was projecting a deficit for the next fiscal year and warned that, should war come, the income from tariffs would drop significantly to the point that the government would have to seek loans in order to fund the war effort. And as usual, Gallatin was right. On June 16th, 1812, the United States declared war on Great Britain, and the following year's report contained a request from Gallatin for authorization for a $20 million loan to be taken out. So there is little to no money coming in. They've still got debts. Expenditures are increasing where are they going to get it? They're going to have to do more loans. And Congress dropped the amount to 16 million, million, but did authorize Gallatin's loan request. Now, at this point, Gallatin had to go on a wheeling and dealing deal. He had to talk with some of the richest financiers in the nation. You know, we've got this loan out there. Can you help us out? When the initial subscription period ended, out of the $16 million that they were asking for, only just under $4 million had been collected. Thus, Gallatin was forced to reopen the subscription as well as offer to, quote, consider individual proposals for taking the residue of the loan. Significantly, such proposals were to state not only the amount of stock that the parties wish to obtain, but also the price they will allow for the same. So basically saying we are desperate. We just need money. We will agree to whatever terms you want. And thus, a consortium of financiers put forward a proposal to take just over $10 million in the stock, but at a reduced rate. For a $100 certificate, they paid $88. So this was a significant drop in the funds that were needed, and the government would still have to pay them out $100 at the end of the term. But the situation was so desperate that Gallatin had no choice but to agree. So his tenure as Secretary of the Treasury is in a really bad place right now. But as often happens with Gallatin, here comes a new opportunity because the Russian czar had actually offered to mediate a peaceful resolution to what we now know of as the War of 1812. So he was willing to act as this mediator between the U.S. and Britain. And Madison decided to appoint the delegation for this mission. The people he selected were U.S. Minister to Russia, John Quincy Adams, James A. Bayard of Delaware, and Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin. However, this put Gallatin, he had to think things through because he couldn't expect to remain Secretary of the Treasury if he went to one of the most distant European capitals, St. Petersburg. As he wrote to a friend on May 5th, quote, I'm well aware that my going to Russia will most probably terminate In the appointment of another Secretary of the Treasury. And in my returning to public life, if I shall have succeeded in making peace, I will be perfectly satisfied. So Gallatin realized the risk, even though Madison was like, we're just going to keep you on as Secretary of the Treasury. It'll be fine. Gallatin knew what was likely to happen, but he still went to Europe. So he and his party departed for Europe on May 9th. Little did Gallatin know that as he sailed, the Senate was busy rejecting his nomination for this peace mission on July 17th. And as he had predicted, the reason that they rejected it were they were like, he can't be Secretary of the Treasury in Russia. We need somebody here to run the Treasury Department, so he's got to choose one or the other. Or since he's not here, President Madison, choose. And meanwhile, Gallatin's enemies had had his treasury post declared vacant and because he had been absent for it from six months and this was their way of forcing Madison's hand. And finally, in February 1814, Madison relented and appointed a new secretary of the treasury as well as put in a new appointment for Gallatin as a commissioner in a peace delegation to negotiate directly with the British. And so, you know, this is a really... Ignominious end to Gallatin's career as Secretary of the Treasury. And it was actually the longest cabinet post to date. You know, Gallatin served as Secretary of the Treasury longer than anybody else, any other cabinet member has before or since. But this is how that period of his life ends. As Gallatin transitions to life out of the cabinet, this seems like this would be a good place to finish up this episode. And I hope you'll join us with the next episode where we see what Gallatin does after leaving the Treasury Department. Spoiler alert, he has one of the most extensive post cabinet careers that we've seen to date in this series. Then at the end, we'll evaluate his life and legacy and determine whether Albert Gallatin has what it takes to join the table of the cabinet all stars. Until next time, I'd like to thank Andy of the History of Africa podcast for joining me on this episode. And be sure to check out the History of Africa anywhere fine podcasts can be found. I'll be sharing information about Andy's podcast on my social media around the time of this episode's release, and we'll have a link on the episode listing on the website, Presidency's Podcast, all one word.com. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
2: The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, we'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency check out our show ohio versus the world on the evergreen podcast network for our new episode about america's most forgotten war now back to the show